Well, um, let's pray together. This is uh, not an easy topic, so let's uh, invite the Spirit to come and teach us as we, uh, as we jump in tonight. Jesus, thank you for your Spirit that guides us. Thank you that you have given yourself to us, that we would know you and that we would uh, have hope that comes from you. I, I am very aware as I approach this subject tonight that um, there are many who look into the gospel and feel that for certain people it's not good news. And so God, I pray that you would help us to see that this is truly good news for all people, all kinds of people. And so uh, help us to see your truth, help us to see your beauty, help us to see the way that you have um, designed us. And God, give us uh, love for one another and love for the world around us. And so guide us, I pray. Uh, Guide my words that they would come from you alone. May you teach us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Um, Note sheets were over there. As a reminder, you have uh, text and email uh, on the bottom there. So as you have questions, uh, feel free to send uh, texts or emails in to be able to engage those. Um, So I want to start out with just an an imagined story, uh, a hypothetical, but a real hypothetical. I'm going to tell the story from a male perspective, because that's my perspective, and it makes life a little easier for me. Um, but it could, it could go on either side. So imagine, as a preteen going into teenaged child, teenager, you're starting to hear your friends talk about the opposite sex in the um, not ooh cooties kind of way, but in the um, huh, like interesting kind of way. Um, from, a, from a guy's perspective, that starts to happen when girls' bodies start to look different than guys' bodies, right? They start to kind of fill out a little bit, and things start to look different. And so guys are, uh, tend to be visually oriented, so that tends to be something that's like, whoa, something's going on here. That looks, that looks different to me. And so there's this conversation that begins to happen among the guys where um, they're starting to see girls in a different kind of way. That same conversation happens in different ways among the girls as they start to see guys in a different way. But imagine you as a participant in that conversation are nodding along because you know it's the right thing to do and you're kind of giggling at the appropriate times like you're supposed to. But you would say, I don't, I don't feel that. I don't. I don't sense that in the same way that those other people do. But probably it's just coming. It'll just take a little bit longer. I'm just a little bit slower. I will, at some point in time, I'll get, I'll get that too. I'll feel like that too. And time continues to go on, and guys are starting to pair up with girls, and connections are starting to happen, and you're still saying, I don't, I don't, I, I don't feel that. I, I don't have that same thing. So there's this emotion There's this draw that my friends describe, but it's not there for me, except I start to discern somewhere along the way, it's actually there for me, it's just there towards people of the same sex, not people of the opposite sex. So at first, you you just get confused. You just assume that something's going to change at some point in time, like sooner or later, this is going to switch. But as time goes on, you start to realize that something else is happening and you start to get to a place where you say, I know what this is. There's a name for this thing that I feel. 
they call this thing gay. That's, that's what I am. And you get to this place of starting to feel like I, this, is, this is the way that I see the world. And particularly if you grew up in a church and you grew up under the teaching of the scriptures and you grew up in a more um, conservatively oriented family, your immediate reaction is, I don't want this thing and I need to get rid of this. And so you start to go forward to be prayed for. You, you try to use like generic terms like um, I'm having a struggle or um, there, there's a, a challenge that I have. There's something that I really need God to do, a really big thing I need God to do. And you use generic terms because you don't want to kind of out yourself, but you're, you're desperate for God to change it. And over time, you're prayed for again and again and again, and God doesn't seem to be changing it. And so now, it's not just what you feel, but the concern of if I tell anybody, I'm going to be rejected by the people who love me the most, for the people who are closest to me. What will they say? How will they respond? And so in the middle of this, you have this tension that you feel you're not the same as your friends, and you feel that. You feel this thing that's not changing, that you feel to some degree, I don't want this, I didn't ask for this. God doesn't seem to be changing it. You have this sense that the community around you will never accept you as you are, and parallel that with a very open and accepting community of people who do feel like you and are pretty loud about it and open about it, but they reject all of the central things that you hold to. What do you do? This is literally the situation for, depending on the statistics, tens to hundreds of thousands of Christians that are wrestling with homosexuality. Now, if you layer on top of that, the, what, there's no good statistical evidence, but anecdotal evidence of another somewhere between 80 and 90% of people who early in life had some sort of sexual trauma where they were abused in some way um, or they experienced some sort of a, a sexual trauma early in life. Now you're into millions of people who are feeling this. What do you do with that? What does the church do with that? The, the heart of the question, and the question I want to try to wrestle with tonight, and then uh, I'm going to kick to Matt to wrestle with a bit next week, is how is the gospel good news to those people? If, if, I, if I emerge out of this saying, this is what I feel, and this is where I'm at. How is the gospel good news in the middle of this? I want to remind you that I come to this, like everybody, with a background. Everybody comes to this situation with a background. And so my background is uh, a lot of theater, a decent amount of fashion design, and coming into ministry in 2002, literally with more gay friends than straight friends. I, I didn't know many straight males at that point outside of the church. That was, that was pretty much it. And so my heart has always broken for the way the church has handled this. That said, um, there's one response to that where you read into the text what you want the text to say. And there's another response to that where you read the text and you seek to respond in a Jesus Christ-like way 
out of that text. And that's where I want to be coming from tonight. So what I want to do is I want to look at three things. I want to look at the cultural context that we're in. I think it's really important to understand the cultural context if we're going to understand uh, the biblical context. But then we will ultimately get into the biblical context. I'm going to hit the key passages. I'm going to walk through them. I'm going to walk through them relatively quickly, but you're welcome to ask as many questions as you want on them, and I'm going to try to give you kind of a sense of uh, what I, I think those passages are teaching. And then I want to get to a pastoral response. What, what does it look like for us to, and by, by pastoral, I don't mean my response as a pastor. I mean our response as shepherding people who are uh, seeking to faithfully follow Jesus and who are also at least oriented towards the same sex. What, what do we do with that? So that's where we're going. Cultural context, biblical context, pastoral response. Um, so let's start culturally. Um, the, the first thing that is important to get is that on both sides of the debate, the language of warfare is used. So if it is the homosexual lobby, they're coming at this in a warfare mentality. I'm going to give you some examples of that in just a minute. But the religious right is coming at this also in a warfare mentality, which is not allowing us to have a healthy conversation. In war, there are always people who get hurt and killed along the way, and uh, some of them don't deserve it, and that's what has happened in this, this fight, this, this um, uh, cultural wrestling. So I, I want you to see that culturally, there's something that has emerged over the last 40 or 50 years that is dramatically different than what was before it. Homosexuality's been around for a really, really long time, but the cultural context has shifted in the last four or five decades. So um, in the U.S., all the way back to our beginnings, we hold to equal rights for all. Um, we've done an incredibly poor job of living that out over the last 200 years. Um, but that's, that's what we hold to, in theory. And that's kind of the way this debate has been uh, structured. Is this an equal rights kind of thing? And how do we handle an equal rights kind of thing? So at the sexual revolution of the 60s, we talked a little bit about that in the first week when all these shifts started to happen. Um, the, the sexual revolution opened things up primarily for heterosexuals, and the racial revolution was happening at the same time, and you were starting to see the Civil Rights Act and some real move in race relations within the U.S., um, and pre predominantly the male homosexual population, although it was also the female homosexual population to some degree, but pr primarily the male homosexual population said, where's ours? <laughs> like... All this is happening, but we are completely overlooked. Like, all these people are getting, like, um, affirmed, and there's this whole new way of looking at the world, and we're still kind of pushed over to the side. And so, um, in 1969, some of you are aware that date is really important within the, uh, the homosexual conversation. That was something called the Stonewall Riots. How many people, I know Matt does, how many people beyond Matt know the Stonewall, Stonewall Riots? Are you guys familiar with that at all? A little bit, heard of it. Okay, so 1969, there was a, a bar and hotel in Greenwich Village in New York City that was known to be a, a gay bar, and that there were riots for, I want to say it was eight days, police involved, um, lots of violence, um, as it was kind of like this, this uprising of the homosexual population saying, like, hear our, hear our voice, listen to our voice. 
And so the Stonewall riots are kind of the center point, uh, the starting point for the way this whole process has, uh, has uh, evolved over a period of time. Out of that, in the early 70s, formed an organization called the Gay Liberation Front. So the Gay Liberation Front, interesting, that's a very warlike language, right? Gay Liberation Front. Um, basically was saying, we need to normalize homosexuality in our culture, and because of, that, uh, because of the culture that they were in in the early 70s, they were largely unsuccessful. Uh, w the U.S. as it related to particularly same-sex, but really anything beyond. We, we were just at the point where kind of the way that we viewed sexuality with things like birth control were starting to open up the way that we saw sexuality. We were still incredibly conservative. You go back and watch those TV shows from the early 70s, like it's just, it's a, it's a different world. And so that world, the Gay Liberation Front did not land well in. And so for really uh, about 10 to 15 years, they made very, very little progress. Um, so the, the whole gay subculture at that point in time was really subjected. I mean, they, there, there, was, there was a lot of abuse, there was a lot of um, poor treatment of gay people uh, under all kinds of different names, including the church in that, in that time. It was a really difficult time. The AIDS epidemic hit in the midst of that. So as the Gay Liberation Front is trying to move forward, being largely unsuccessful, the AIDS epidemic is sweeping a, a variety of communities, uh, dr drug-using communities most heavily, but right behind that community was the gay community, and, and there was a lot of crossover between heavy drug use and the gay subculture for all kinds of reasons at that point. And so the AIDS epidemic just swept through the, the gay community. Uh, this is the point, interestingly, where the male homosexual lobby and the female homosexual lobby actually started to work together. So up until this point, when you look historically, there was very little connection between lesbians and male homosexuals, between gay, gay men. Very little connection. Uh, in fact, lesbians saw the male homosexual culture is, is incredibly eroticized and uh, totally focused on sex. And the lesbian subculture was much more focused on uh, connectivity. Um, it kind of, kind of makes sense the way that God's wired us. And so um, there was this kind of push against one another. And uh, lesbians actually kind of refused to be associated with the gay subculture. But the AIDS epidemic changed all of that. And there was this need to kind of come around the, uh, and for the gay subculture to kind of begin to interact together uh, as they kind of um, emerged out of that. Now this, this becomes vitally important. There was a push at the end of the 80s to eliminate the gay liberation front um, among the homosexual lobby, to eliminate the gay liberation front and to use literally their words, not mine, PR experts to do a better job of normalizing homosexuality in the larger culture. And there's a bunch of information on this. We could go as deep as you want to dive into it. But there's a book out there called After the Ball. Uh, it's the, the full title is, I don't have it in front of me, but it's on your sheet somewhere. Um, it, it's basically normalizing gay culture by the 90s. And After the Ball is actually written by those uh, a, a handful of people that were at the front of this movement, and it was basically their strategy laid out in book form. This is, this is how we are going to normalize homosexuality within the culture. 
It, it's now out of print. They've removed it from print. Um, you can buy it for $225 on Amazon if anybody's interested. I would really love to read it. So if anybody wants to buy me a $225 gift, I would really love to read that book. Uh, it's really, really difficult to find now. But if you're ever in a, a, a thrift store and you find one for me, that would be great. Has anybody even ever heard of it? It's, it's very rarely even if you heard of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so after the ball is basically a, a, a fully orbed PR strategy where they said, um, w one, we're going to push into the American Psychological Association to remove the idea of homosexuality as a disorder from, uh, from the American Psychological Association, which happened very quickly. Uh, that move, move happened pretty quick. We're gonna push into uh, all of the popular culture of the day uh, in order to normalize homosexual relationships within popular culture. Um, and then we're going to push into the church so the church would change their view on homosexuality. They were amazingly successful in the first two and uh, dramatically unsuccessful, at least at that point, in, in the third. Um, so the idea was to desensitize the public. This is a quote from After the Ball, not from my copy of it, because again, you haven't bought me that copy of it yet. But when you do, I'll pull it from my copy. But this is a quote from After the Ball. We need a continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. If straights can't shut off the shower, they may at least get used to being wet. The main thing is to talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly tiresome. Seek desensitization and nothing more. If you can get straights to think about homosexuality, think homosexuality is just another thing meriting no more than a shrug of the shoulders than your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. So it's coming out of this book within this mindset. So what I want you to see is the, the move that happened culturally, and this is one tiny little piece of it, was an intentionally orchestrated move that was saying, we need to change the way that we see this. So that's one side of the debate. On the other side of the debate, you have this uh, religious right movement that used the same kind of warlike language to push against the homosexual movement. The reason why they were not successful in the third part of the strategy was because what got traction in the church was not love your neighbor as yourself, was not Jesus' command to love all people created in the image of God and, and invite them into redemption. The reason they got no traction was because the religious right was pushing just as hard to say, absolutely not, those people are not welcome here. And so Jerry Falwell and the, uh, the movement of the moral majority pushed into all kinds of legislation and all kinds of uh, public debate around the idea of homosexuality being something that needed to be resisted because it was the enemy. Fascinatingly enough, the a centerpiece of the legislation of the moral majority um, was an act that um, was enacted uh, and lasted for almost 20 years called the Defense of Marriage Act. Maybe you've heard the Defense of Marriage Act. And, Anybody know who signed, what president signed the Defense of Marriage Act into existence? Bill Clinton. How about that? Is that fascinating or what? So this was, this was not a partisan thing. This was a, um, a broad, sweeping effort on the side of the religious right to say, not only 
ooh, that was interesting. Um, not only are we not in favor of this activity, we want to eliminate these people from the public sphere. That's why this thing is so difficult for the church to wrestle with. Because you have militant language on both sides, you have people fighting with one another, and you have a very small percentage of people in the middle who are saying, whoa, whoa, whoa I think we missed the gospel in this somewhere. Like, I, I think we've, we've missed something. So the cultural context has created this space where sexual sin has gotten elevated not just in its impact on our body, but on a list of sins as the most important and the most difficult, the, the most difficult to overcome of the sins, and specifically homosexual sin listed as in people's minds, not in the Bible, in people's minds, as higher than and worse than all other kinds of sin. And so this debate has been kind of laid out um, on two sides that are almost kind of moving away further and further and further away from each other. So what's the Bible have to say about it? Because um, both sides miss the scriptures. So what, what do we say as, as people of the word? What would we say as people who open up the scriptures and say, um, what, what's the Bible have to say about this? Well, um, there's a bunch of linguistic study. We don't have time to get into all kinds of um, Hebrew and Greek words, um, although that would be really great fun. Um, I, I'm going to try to, the, the, the principle I want you to try to work with me on is that we need to both see the forest and the trees. So um, you can go one side or the other uh, in biblical interpretations that relates to this issue, where you want to just kind of see the big picture and you're not interested in all of the technical debates, or you're in the technical debate and you're missing the big picture, and, and we need to see both. We need to see both the forest and the trees in each of these contexts. So what I want to do is I want to walk through the core text. I'm going to walk through them pretty quickly, but I want to try to walk through the core text that I believe lay out what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. So we're going to start back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. Um, I, am, I should have brought my own actual physical Bible down, and that would have worked way faster, but I'm going to be moving around on my text here. Sorry about that. Um, this is uh, starting in verse 18. It says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the heaven, every, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib, rib that the Lord God had taken... From the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God from the beginning has set up this male-female relationship. Now the big conversation that is had among people who are trying to interpret this text as it relates to homosexuality is... Is the question is, is what God is creating for Adam an opposite-gendered human or a human? Because Adam, by himself, is in the midst of the animal world. He's naming all of these animals. And so a progressive theology would say, um, Adam 
needed a human. And it, it's not so much that Adam needed a woman. Adam just needed another, another human, another of, of, its kind, of his kind. Um, uh, without going into a whole bunch of technical jargon, there is a Hebrew term that's used here for Eve that is unique in this context. It's never used anywhere else in the scriptures. And it's used as an opposite gender, or not specific to gender, an opposite. So it's not saying uh, one like him, but one um, opposite him. One similar but different kind of thing. And so the language here seems to point itself to very specifically men and women created for one another in a very, in a very specific way. So um, uh, we can do more about that, but he's talking about primarily a complementary helper. And so this is the created order, the way that we begin the process, seeing the, um, the, the way this is laid out. What's important for you to hear is that this passage, the reason why we have to start here, this passage will be quoted by Jesus as well as the writers of the New Testament over and over and over again every time they talk about marriage. There's literally not a place where the Bible talks about marriage in the New Testament that doesn't either reference or directly quote this passage. And so this passage is kind of the centerpiece of the way Jesus understood marriage, the way that Paul understood marriage. Okay, so um, we're not going to go specifically into this, but the next section is Leviticus 18 and 20. Um, Leviticus 18 and 20 is in the midst of what's called the holiness code. So if you would study the book of Leviticus, Leviticus is all about holiness. It's about um, holy activities. It's about holy plates. It's about holy clothes. It's about holy places and holy days, holy people who are doing holy things on holy days. Like it's all about holiness. The whole thing is holiness. Leviticus 18 and 20 are right in the middle of that talk about holiness. And there are there, there are sections of both 18 and 20 that are talking about sexuality that use the language, it is not holy or it is an abomination, is the word that's used, for a man to lie with a man as he would with a woman. And so that's the, the tension that's found in this passage. Now the big question that people say is, is really, really clear linguistically what's going on. The big question is, are we bound to that? Like we, we, we wear cotton blend now, not just cotton. Like we, we eat like um, bacon cheeseburgers and those, I mean, I, I've long held that that's a double negative and kosher should operate that same way. Like if you have bacon and cheese on your burger, then it should like cancel itself out, just like a double negative, right? But it doesn't actually work that way. Um, my sister's Jewish. I constantly am trying to convince her that she can have a bacon cheeseburger, and it just never works. Anyway, uh, side note. Um, so the question is, do we still need to follow this? Because if this is just a ceremonial law, we, we don't need to follow it. But there are all kinds of things within the law that are not specifically re-upped in the New Testament that we still follow. So some of the ways that we treat one another, primarily the, um, the moral code, is not specifically every single instance uh, re-upped in the New Testament, but it's still assumed upon as the way that we interact with one another morally. All, all I want to say about Leviticus 18 and 20 is there, there's nothing in this that would immediately jump out and say it's not something that we should, that's something that we should um, move away from. So there's nothing in the text that would lend itself to saying we should disregard it completely. 
we can dig in really deeply, as deep as you want to go, into the conversation about why we should um, keep the understanding of it, even though some of the specifics of it probably shouldn't be kept. Things like, um, for instance, if a child disobeys his parents, he's executed, which I've thought would probably help a lot of our behavioral problems, but it's probably not the way to go. I would no longer have children, uh, for instance. And so, uh, so there are things like that that you would look at and say, the heart of it, remember forests, not the trees, the heart of it, that children should obey their parents, oh yeah, that's really clearly re-upped within the New Testament law, that's really clearly understood. Stoning those children who are disobeying their parents is not necessarily re-upped in the same way. So we can have a conversation around the level to which homosexual behavior, so homosexual erotic behavior, um, is uh, excluded from the law, or the way it should be handled within the law. All I wanna say to you is that on a broad scale, there is no reason linguistically and within the text to say we should toss out the entire concept of it. it in the midst of the holiness codes, those, those things generally remain. The weight of the offense is often changed, but the, the morality of the code tends to remain. So as far as I want to get into Leviticus, because uh, it's Old Testament, and I think as we get into the New Testament, you'll start to see a little bit more of a pattern. So I want to move next to the sin lists. I'm not going to pull uh, them all out individually, but um, if you've read through Paul's letters, you know that Paul is fond of making lists of uh, good things and lists of bad things. And so one of the clear ones is in Galatians chapter 5, where he says, uh, this is the work of the flesh, this is the work of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians, uh, as well as in 1 Timothy, homosexuality is specifically called out within the sin list. So homosexual behavior is called out within those lists. The question is, what kind of behavior is called out? And uh, Matt can speak more to this to the extent that he wants to. Uh, he's done a little bit more research on it than I have. But um, there, there's, a, there's a Greek word that is often substituted within those lists, within progressive theology, that means something different than at least the word that we have in the best texts that we have. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to try to get too deep into uh, linguistics, but the, the Greek word that gets substituted is the word uh, pederasty, and that word literally means an abusive and um, uh, power dynamic filled homosexual relationship. So this would be like a slave, uh, a master to a slave or an adult to a child or some kind of an abusive relationship. The, the other word, the one that is, uh, that is in the text to the best text that we have is the word arsenikotai. I think, I'm not sure if I'm saying that quite right. Close, something like that. Arsenikotai, there we go. Um, and there's some debate as to whether that word has been inserted into the text or it was originally part of the text. Um, again, I'm not going to go through a whole long list of things, but there's a fascinating line of theology where you can take Leviticus 18 and 20 and the, the way that particularly the Septuagint, so this is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates those words uh, in Leviticus 18 and 20, and there's a direct parallel to the concept of our which is a, a relatively 
um, un unutilized word, uh, little utilized word within the Greek writings of the day. So you wouldn't see that word just out there everywhere. It was used very specifically by Paul, and most more, um, uh, we'll call it traditional theologians, would say the parallel is back to Leviticus. It's not that it's a brand new made up word that people have put in in order to oppress people, but rather this was a word that Paul, who was an Old Testament scholar and a Pharisee, understood really clearly, and so he w it makes perfect sense that coming out of the Levitical tradition, Paul would have used that term, arsenikoitai. So that is a, uh, a Paul tying this argument together, and arsenikoitai is not a power dynamic word. And we're going to get into this in just a minute, but uh, the, the argument that the, um, what's listed in those sin lists is only a uh, master to slave, adult to child kind of relationship doesn't hold water if you believe our Arsenikoitai is coming out of Leviticus and that's the word that Paul uses. So the, the only way that debate works is if Paul used the term pederasty and it was changed at some later point to Arsenikoitai. I have something. Uh, so Jump in. Please can do. talk about the yep. uh, cultural context of Corinth at the time. It would be important to mention that, yep. I think. Well, hit it. Go, go ahead. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, there was a lot of uh, prostitution, uh, temple idolatry going on in the culture. Absolutely. And, and I think that Paul was trying to, uh, in many of his letters, point to that cultural mm -hmm. context of yeah. what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of sex was involved in those worshiping of idols. So. Yes. So I, am I hitting it right? I mean, yeah, no, you're exactly right. And it was, it was very, uh, very public. And so um, one argument goes, what was happening in Corinth was ab abusive sex, and that was what Paul is, uh, was outlawing. In fact, when we get to Romans 1, there's another side of that argument that also gets, gets used as well. Um, but there, there's a lot of records both within uh, Corinth, very specifically within Ephesus, um, as, as, which is where uh, Timothy was serving when Paul wrote 1 Timothy to him. Um, there, there are uh, historical records of peer-to-peer, long-term, monogamous, same-sex relationships. So the idea that, this, the, that the way that we see homosexuality is different than what was happening there isn't completely true, but it is really important to understand there were some other things that were happening which Paul was clearly um, saying we, followers of Jesus must not live like this. And so both, both things were happening at the same time. And that's kind of what, what trips up the conversation because we tend to focus on one without focusing on the other. And that tends to be the, the progressive way of looking at theology kind of pushes towards, yeah, these were all abusive relationships where historically... Uh, even, even secular historians say, actually, that's, that's just not true. There were long-term monogamous, peer-based, same-sex relationships that were happening at the time. They, they weren't, interestingly, our society is the first society that has legalized those in terms of, uh, of marriage and lifelong uh, legal standing, civic commitment. Um, even Rome and Corinth didn't have that. But there was a very clear um, acceptance and recognition of that in Roman court. And I, I think also that, uh, you know, 
in that passage in first or was it first Corinthians? Mm-hmm. He was talking about he was talking to Christians and said, "You shouldn't no longer continue in this these sinful activities because you were washed. Yes, that's right. You that's were right. sanctified. You mm-hmm. were glorified by the blood of Jesus Christ. So, I would expect that they were struggling with their new identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean that that's yeah. what I read into the yeah. text. Is I mean, I know it's not." Nope. proper to read into the text, but, but that, you know, these were new Christians that they were coming out of extreme sexual idolatry. That's correct. And right. they were struggling with getting back into the, that lifestyle. And, yeah. you know, Paul was reminding them of who their new identity was. Yes. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, very well said. That's exactly right. And identity, we're going to get there in a bit, is one of, one of the core issues that we have to kind of drill down into uh, if we're going to have a good understanding of how we respond culturally to this. Uh, let's hit a couple more. Um, Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, we hit this a little bit last week, and so um, I don't need to take a ton of time uh, to go into Matthew 19 this week, but um, we talked about this idea. I, I want to admit up front, this is primarily Jesus speaking to the issue of divorce and remarriage in, in Matthew 19. But um, he also lays out a, a doctrine of singleness that we talked about, and he references back to Genesis chapter 2. So um, w- one, of the, uh, one of the quick arguments that I get from people is, Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality, why is it such a big deal? And I, I hear that, but in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, while not specifically speaking against homosexuality, did very specifically re-up the created order uh, come back to Genesis chapter 2 and the um, male and female uh, creation, the kind of the good plan of God from the beginning. Uh, and Jesus showed by speaking to singleness, he's not, willing, he's, he's not unwilling to make waves. And so um, J- Jesus spoke into the culture in a way that was already kind of breaking down the, the stereotypes of the culture. And I think what we'll see as we get into a little bit more of a pastoral response, I think he was giving a clear indication of the way um, we can lead people towards healthy lives within their sexuality. So we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there in a minute. Um, let's, let's get to the big one. Um, Romans chapter 1 is really, really the core issue. Um, Romans chapter 1, you can make all kinds of arguments as it relates to the sin lists, as it re- relates to Leviticus, as even as it goes back to Genesis chapter 2. And while I don't believe that those arguments are coherent from a, a healthy interpretive perspective, I can at least see where they're coming from, from an interpretive perspective. Romans 1 is nearly impossible to understand differently than this. So I, I, I want to read it for you first. Um, and, and as I read it for you, I want you to understand this is Paul's most majestic letter. And this argument is kind of the, um, the, the first three chapters as one large argument is Paul saying, this is everybody. This is all of us. So this is, a, this, this is kind of the, the beginning foundation block of Paul's argument. So let me read for you uh, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I'm going to stop there before we go to 24. Um, Paul's argument is that when we substitute the created for the creator, there's a shift that happens in the way that we see the world. And so the, the entirety of his argument is that wisdom moves us toward the creator and foolishness moves us away from the creator toward the created so that glory is exchanged, so that we begin to not just accept what is opposite the created order, but we begin to glorify what's opposite the created order. So the way that sin works is it's not simply an, a, a, a shadow side, but it's actually a devolution that moves us away from the heart of, of God. That's, that's the heart of what Paul's saying. Does that, that make sense? Do you, do you see that within there? So he's basically, he's, he's describing it like a spiral. And so he's saying, um, you, you see the beauty of God in creation, you see the beauty of God in his revelation of himself, but when you see the beauty of God and you substitute self for God, you substitute created for creator, you're not simply denying the creator, you're actually entering into a cycle that is going to move you away from the creator. So there's a, a, a movement away, not just an, an opposite of. So I, I want you to see the weight of the argument because that becomes central to what um, gets quoted all the time here, which is coming, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, so um, th there's this, uh, this picture that Paul's painting about the, starting with the created order, there's a way that God has set up the world to work. He's not explicitly referencing back to Genesis 2, but he is by, um, by reflection reflecting back to the created order. And what he's saying is there's a way that God has established the opposite genders to work so that there is a pursuit that happens, and that pursuit that is in creation is a mirror of the creator. So, uh, so I'll say it this way. Um, the, the pursuit that a man would have for a woman or a woman would have for a man parallels by creation, this is Paul's argument, the pursuit that God would have for man and man would have for God. So there's a, there's a, a design. The, the way that, that creation is designed is that the created order parallels the creator and the way the creator operates within the created order. So that means that a, a, the, the Genesis 2 binary, the male and female created for one another, isn't simply a, a nice way that bodies fit together, but it's actually a, a way that the, the pursuit of God by man 
and the pursuit of man by God is imaged within the creation. So what Paul says, if you follow that argument to that point, what Paul then says is that the devolution of sin moves us to the place where man is pursuing man and woman is pursuing woman, which is the opposite of the created order. So Paul's argument is not about sexual immorality per se. Paul's argument is about taking creation and as the created, inverting it so you're living opposite. So Paul's argument of, uh, against homosexual relationships in, the, in their erotization is that when, a, when a, a woman lies with another woman or a man lies with another man in a sexual relationship, the, the created order is inverted, and now what's being reflected is man chasing after man, not man chasing after God, and God moving away from man because the created is pursuing the created. So, so Paul's argument here is not primarily moral, it's primarily theological. And that's what people tend to miss with Romans 1, is that they, they're having a conversation about it as, about whether this is the same kind of homosexual relationship that we practice, is this a lifetime monogamous love relationship, or is this a, a temple prostitution kind of thing, or is this a, um, a master with a slave kind of thing. That's not Paul's point. Paul, it, it's not that Paul's not going to talk about morality. The sinless are moralists. He does talk about morality. But here, Paul's not talking about morality. He's talking about theology. And what he's saying theologically is that the created order has been set up a certain way, and that pursuit, man's pursuit of God and God's pursuit of man, is built into the male-female relationship, the way that we as creation mirror the creator. Is everybody with me so far? Because we, we didn't finish this passage yet, but this is, this is, this is tough to get your head around. Um, so th- this is the picture of Christ and, and our pursuit of him. But now listen to starting in verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. That's one of my favorites. Uh, Disobedient to parents. Wouldn't think that made the list. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Here's what I want you to see. When Paul makes the argument Paul is not saying what gets said often when Romans 1 is preached, which is the pinnacle of all sinfulness is homosexual activity because if men are lying with men and women are lying with women, then everything's gone wrong. What Paul said is there's a theological thing that's happening here because you've inverted the created order, and as soon as the created order order gets inverted, that may not be your thing, but tell me that you read those last four verses and didn't find your thing on there right? Like it's in there. Like whether it's uh, inventors of evil, that's what I really love because in the 21st century, we're really good at that. We all, there's all kinds of new ways to sin. Like we're great at that. But like disobedience to parent is in there. Haughtiness is in there. Like, like there's a little, like, like I just like looked over top of that person because they were just not worthy of me. Like that's what Paul says. Literally, haughtiness is the inversion of the created order. Like do you get, do you get like, just think about haughtiness. Haughtiness says, I am, as an image bearer of God, 
greater than you as an image bearer of God. So therefore, I get to look over top of you and ignore you, which puts me in what position? God, right? It's the, it's the inversion of the created order. So what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 is not primarily that homosexuality is evil. What he says primarily is that you're evil and that I'm evil. He, he does, he's, not, he's not calling out certain segments of the population. He's using an illustration to make a theological point, and then he's saying, that, that's all of you. And, by the way, he's going to go into Romans chapter 2, and he's going to say the same thing about very hyper-religious people who are super concerned about their morality, and he's going to lay that whole thing out. So by the time he gets to Romans chapter 3, he, he says, there's none righteous. None. Like, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's going to lay the whole thing out. By the time he gets to Romans chapter 3, like, I, I just go home for fun and just read through Romans 1, Romans 2, and Romans 3 and stop before you get the redemption part and just see how you feel. Because <laughs> it's awful. Like, it's, it's the most beautifully constructed argument for the brokenness of humanity that's ever been written. It's not about homosexuality. It's about sin. And he is listing homosexuality as a way to illustrate the way that we have inverted the entire order. We still good? Still with me? That's a lot. I just laid a lot on you there. I started preaching for a minute. I meant to be teaching. Sorry. Sorry. We're good? Okay. So, um, there's some objections that people throw out. This is, this is the biblical case. There's more to it than this, and we can dig down on all of these, but this is at a high level the biblical case. A couple of things that people throw out as objections. Let me just hit a couple of them. Aren't people created this way? If God created people and he created some people as same-sex attracted, doesn't that mean it must be okay? So the, the first thing I need to say is scientifically, we are still not at the place where we have any idea where same-sex attraction comes from. Um, We'll talk a little bit about trauma in a minute. Um, a big chunk of same-sex attracted people right now in 2021 have trauma as part of their background. But we have no idea if that's true historically, and that's not always true. I personally know quite well two different people who have been same-sex attracted their entire life who have no trauma. Matt's story has some trauma. He'll talk about that a little bit next week. But I, I can... Two people, one male, one female, who have zero trauma. In fact, incredibly wonderful, godly families who, that story that I told at the beginning, that's their story. They just, they never saw the opposite sex as attractive, ever. ever. Just never been there. And so, here's what I want you to hear. We don't know, therefore, we need to come at this conversation with a lot of mercy and a lot of grace, because we have no idea what's behind all of this. But I, I will very simply say this. M my genetic wiring is to have sex with beautiful women. Not my wife, just beautiful women in general. That's the way I'm wired. I'm a heterosexual man. That's the way I'm wired. That does not mean it's okay. That there's an element of that that has to be reined in because that's not okay. There's th those things, whether that's your specific thing or whatever your story is, you might be wired genetically 
to uh, walk into a store and steal something. You may be wired genetically that when somebody irritates you, you're going to fly off the handle and do a Moses and like, you know, hit him once and bury him in the sand or whatever. Like that may be that you're wiring. That doesn't make it okay. And so the argument that it comes from creation, therefore it must be okay, can't work because of Genesis 3. If we saw Adam in Genesis 2 longing for another Adam, then there might be an argument that could be made. But Genesis 3 comes really quick after Genesis 2. And when Genesis 3 comes in, everything's broken. There, there were no birth defects, for instance, before Genesis 3. There, there, there were no... Um, there, there was, I, I always say it this way. Uh, there was wine without alcoholism. There was food without gluttony. There was sex without lust. Like that, that was Genesis 2. All of the good stuff was there without the bad stuff. But Genesis 3 comes right next. And it's not just our actions, it's actually built into us. So the argument that people are created like this doesn't, doesn't hold water, I don't think. Um, the Bible doesn't talk about the same kind of homosexuality, that's another uh, objection. Uh, the, the kind of homosexual, homosexuality we're talking about is long-term committed monogamous relationships. I already talked to that a little bit. There's a bunch of uh, historical documentation that says that's just simply not true, that Paul would have very clearly known of the same kind of homosexuality that we also uh, glorify within our culture. Um, to Matt's point, he knew of a lot of different kinds of homosexuality, and it was right for him to speak against some of those that were very exploitive, but he did not clarify, which means knowing of those same kinds of homosexual relationships, he did not distinguish them. And so that's just important for us to know, even if that feels to you like an argument from silence, um, it, it's still important to distinguish. Um, we, we, oh, the other thing I should say is in, uh, in Romans chapter 1, Paul, the term that Paul uses is consumed with passion for one another. That uh, does not sound like in either English or in the original Greek like an exploitive relationship. That sounds like a mutuality relationship, consumed with passion for one another. This is a love-based, pure based relationship. Romans 1 is really, really important for you to see within the overall argument because, like I said, it's the one that doesn't seem to have, to me, a coherent response from the progressive, uh, from progressive theology. Okay, keep going. Um, we find it in the animal kingdom. There are people who use that argument. Like, we just, uh, we, we see homosexual relationships at times in the animal kingdom. So two responses to that. One is, uh, we don't see it often and for long. Um, it's not, it's not a regular part of the animal kingdom. It's a um, kind of a, a, a every once in a while it shows up. Um, the, the other argument is the, really the key one. Um, praying mantises eat their spouse. Like, just because you see it in the animal kingdom does not mean it's a good idea, okay? So I, it's just a weird argument to me because it's like, well, we see chimpanzees do it, so therefore we should, like, are you kidding? They throw poop at each other. Like, we don't, like, we don't do that. So... Um, it's it, like, like I get it from a creative order kind of perspective, but um, th there's, a, there's a very clear sense that God has created humanity in a specific kind of way, biblically. And so to say what's in the animal kingdom, therefore it must be okay, actually um, lowers a view of humanity rather than raising a view of humanity. Um, last one, who are you to judge? That's the big one, right? Who, who are you to judge? Um, and the the short answer to that question is those last four verses that I read from Romans chapter one. We're also broken, sinful people, 
And if we're judging as though we're not, then we've completely missed the boat. The argument that Paul's making is not that one holy person stands in judgment over the unholy person. The argument that Paul's making is we are all equally in need of grace. So the fact that specific sin is seen in specific people and other specific sin is seen in other specific people uh, isn't a matter of judgment. It's a matter of recognizing we're all in the same boat. We're, we're all broken. We're all in need of grace. And what has been done incredibly wrong in this argument has been the church acting as though homosexuality is distinct from all of the other sins that the church is regularly in the midst of. It's not. It's that we're, we're equally sinful, equally in need of grace. That's the heart of Romans chapter 1 and really the, the, the focus of the gospel. And so to say who are we to judge, um, who, who are we to judge anybody? Well, we wouldn't be except that Paul says, like, especially within the church, you, you need to judge one another. Like, you have to. 1 Corinthians 5. Like, you, you need to uh, pronounce judgment on one another for our, our good, for our edification, for our growth. And that's why we have things like church discipline, because we need to shape and form one another. And as it relates to the broader culture, um, a good coherent argument, which we can have down the line if you'd like, can be made around the church should leave everybody else alone, which, which I get, and we can have a good argument around that. Matt's point is a real key one in that when he was talking about Corinth. When, when Paul was arguing with people in Corinth, what he was saying is, remember who you are now, because they were living in a certain way, and he was saying, yeah, but now you're not, you're not there anymore. And so at the very, very least, for us to say as followers of Jesus, there's a, a line that needs to be drawn. Um, the reason why we're uncomfortable doing that is because that line doesn't exist in any other area of our life. That's the challenge. Like, like you, you know, um, when you get particularly to the coasts and you get into some of the real progressive cities in, uh, in America, fasting and I'll, I'll call it prayer, meditation, happens more statistically among people who reject Jesus than those who follow Jesus. Like these are basic things that are inherent to the church. Um, basic morality is seen more by people who practice Eastern religion than follow Jesus. So that, that's our problem. The, the issue is there is no distinction between the church and the world. And so judgment has to be legislated because it's not being enacted within the church as a body within community because it doesn't need to be legislated from the top down it needs to be us caring for one another and walking with one another and restoring one another okay so um last section and then we'll get to uh get to some questions um how do we respond pastorally how is this good news what, what, do, we, what do we do with this um, and i want to just kind of walk you through a, a couple ways to think about it um the the first thing we have to do is ground ourselves in the back end of Romans chapter 1 and recognize that this is a common battle for everybody. Your, your battle may or, may or may not be homosexuality, but your battle is something and it's deep. And when we all recognize that our battles are common, the process of fighting them becomes far healthier. Um, my anecdotal estimate, like I said earlier at the beginning, um, there's no good statistics on this. My anecdotal estimate by the people that I've talked to is that roughly 90% of people today, 2021, who identify as homosexual 
have had some kind of a tra traumatic sexual experience in their early years, which means we need to approach these conversations with a huge level of grace and recognize that people's responses are not, I choose sin. People's responses are, I am broken and hurt and I'm trying to figure this out. And so the way that this becomes good news is that that trauma doesn't define us nor, nor, any more than our sin defines us. But that's a process. That's not just a statement. You can't just say like, oh, don't worry, that trauma doesn't define you. Let's move on. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. There has to be a process of loving people where they are and loving them towards Jesus. If, if my estimate's right and 90% of people who identify as same-sex attracted are coming out of some sort of a traumatic experience, then we have to be really careful with the way that we're engaging this, not just make big blank statements and throw, throw stuff out at people. Yeah, jump in, Matt. Yeah, I would say, too, that um, for people that are same-sex attracted, uh, one thing that makes it hard is I didn't one, one day wake up and go, oh, I cho chose to be gay. You know, right. that, that wasn't a conscious, you know, right. like, yeah, engaging in sexual behavior with other people of the same sex was a decision that I made. Yeah. But the attraction wasn't, it was like, you know, when you wake up and you're like, oh, my, my eyes are actually hazel. I didn't really <laughs> yeah, notice right, that. Right. But you, it, it's, a, it's just an awareness, you know, that, and then yeah. it's, oh, I'm different. I'm mm -hmm. definitely, I, I don't want to be, I just want to be normal. So I think that that's something that a lot of people don't understand. Like, no, I, right. I, even when I first started attending here, I think in my, um, in, when I was giving my testimony, I said something about, like, I didn't feel like it was a choice, and I got talked to by a number <laughs> of elders after that. But that's the way I felt. You know, I didn't feel like it was something that I consciously chose. Uh, it was something more or less um, that I reacted to. Yeah. And I, would, I would go a step further to say that, the only people I know who choose same-sex attraction end up rejecting the same-sex attraction that they've chosen down the line because they've chosen it as an identity thing, which is what we're going to get to in just a second. But it's, it's, it's not chosen any more than I chose heterosexuality. I didn't like one day think, I think today will be the say, day that I'm attracted to women. Like, it's like it just happened. Like, there's just a period of time where it, does, it emerges, and I would, I would affirm. I don't think it's a choice that you made. Um, I, and... I think that's why we have to walk with one another and be gracious to one another. And that was the next thing I was going to say. 90%, I would say, has trauma as the root cause, but 100% of the battle that is happening around homosexuality in the church is due to identity. It's an identity issue. When you say, um, I, and I totally get the heart of it, I've said it, um, I don't say it anymore, but I used to say it, um, Hate the sin, love the sinner. Who's ever heard that before? Um, what, what you're saying is, I, I hate the way you identify, and I want to love the you that I'd like you to be someday, which is not the way Jesus interacts with us. Jesus does not um, reject us as we are and love us as we will be. He loves us as we are. And so when, when I, I get the distinction, Jesus doesn't love the sin either, but to the extent that our sinfulness is interwoven into our identity, we have to begin by teaching people healthy identity. 
And that process of teaching healthy identity does not start with rejecting what feels to be at that moment a core aspect of someone's identity. You can't start there. You can't be like, let me rip out your identity and tell you what your identity should be. You, you begin to walk with people and teach what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what the good news really is. And, and I think we can all say, I'm going to at least speak for Matt and I, but I think we could probably all affirm that if we're going to be identified by our sexuality, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, and the way that we enact that sexuality, that, that's a level of pressure that I don't want on my identity. Like, I'm a mess. Like, the good news of Jesus is that I'm not identified by my behavior, whatever my behavior is. And when I'm identified by my, my by behavior, there's a level of pressure that's put on me that is not sustainable. You can't live like that. And that's the problem with that, that identity. There, there's a core identity issue that has to be taught. And the only way to teach that is a progressive move towards identity in Christ. That needs to be something that emerges over a period of time, not something that's just like dropped into you. So identity is a core issue. Um, a, couple, a couple things that can also be helpful here. Um, I, I think it's really clear biblically that orientation is not a sin. Uh, what, what you, being tempted is not sin. It's walking through, uh, li living out that temptation, acting on that temptation that's sinful. The same thing's true for orientation. So to say that because, uh, and there's a period of time where, uh, so Matt, Matt is here because he's been a part of, he's now a part of Mosaic, but he's been a part of York Alliance for a long time. He's been a leader at York Alliance for a long time. Um, I've, I, I sat with him lots, I can't even number the number of times that Matt and I sat down and wrestled through all kinds of different stuff. Um, Matt, the fact that Matt has a same-sex orientation excludes him from absolutely nothing in the kingdom. If you, I, that's a vitally important thing for you to get. Like, your orientation is not sinful. It doesn't make you second class. Matt could be the lead pastor of this church. Matt could be the district superintendent. Matt could be the president of the alliance. The, the orientation that Matt has does not limit him in any way. In the same way, the orientation that any of you have, heterosexual, homosexual, or something in that broad pan area, it does not, that orientation does not limit you. The ori orientation is not sinful. It's the action that comes out of the orientation that can be sinful. And I have just as much proclivity to sin with my orientation as Matt has to sin with his. Like, we're, we're equal in that. Um, so one of the things that, because of my background, uh, I've had the opportunity, real privilege, to do is to, um, Matt is the one brave soul who's been willing to be very vocal about where his journey has taken him. I've sat with um, a dozen or more people who are in the same position as Matt, different stories, but are not as comfortable sharing all of their journey with everybody, at least at this point. And um, what I say to them over and over and over again is, if marriage is going to be an option for you, remember, you don't have to marry an entire gender. You have to marry a person. So Matt and I have had this conversation. Like, uh, we prayed, there was a period of time that we prayed, not that, uh, not that Matt would, would become heterosexual. I, I'm, I'm sure that happens now and then, but I, I've never seen that happen personally. 
And I'm always a little suspect when that conversation starts to happen. But I've prayed very specifically that Matt would fall in love with a single woman. Because if Matt is going to be married and have a family, he could do that with one woman. He doesn't have to be attracted to every female. That's not, at this point, a, a prayer that God has seen fit to answer. But my prayer is never, for all of the people that I've counseled that are same-sex attracted, my prayer is never that God would just change it completely unless that's what they ask me to pray for them. I, if they desire marriage and family and uh, a path that is ordained by God in that d- direction, I pray that they would be attracted to one person. I actually think it's kind of cool to think I'm really attracted to this one person and I'm not tempted by the rest of that gender. Like, that's pretty amazing. Like, that'd be... Uh, I, Coming from my perspective, I just think that sounds pretty great. So there, the, the idea that you, um, you have to have a conversion from homosexuality to heterosexuality in order to be able to biblically engage your sexuality just doesn't hold water. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Like, you're only engaging your sexuality with one person in covenant love anyway. And so you only have to fall in love with one of them. So that's, that's an important piece. Um, as churches and as a community, we need to do a much better job of valuing singleness and inviting singles into families. 1 Corinthians 7 will make it incredibly clear that singles are a gift to the church and that singleness is something to be pursued to the extent that you're able. It's actually, Paul is really, really clear, better to be single than to be married if you can help it. If you're not able to, Okay, but if you can be single, be single. The church, uh, the church has um, recorrected that over and over again. So the Catholic Church historically has valued singleness in a good way, um, but then kind of went over the top with that to um, went from valuing singleness to uh, forcing singleness, and the Protestant Church reacted against that. And instead of um, enforcing singleness, they um, basically enforced marriage you know, like pushed towards marriage, which neither one of those is, is healthy biblically. Celibacy is a gift given by God biblically to some people for the edification of the church, which is why all the gifts are given. And so there's, there's actually a freedom in singleness that Paul says, if you can stay here, stay here. It's really, really good. If you can't, and a lot of people can't, that's fine. Then be married, but recognize that your marriage actually limits you in the way that you engage the kingdom. And all the married people said amen. Because it's like you have to, you, you're now concerned about somebody else. Like that's just the way it works. And, and that's, that's okay. But um, we need to do a much better job of valuing singleness and inviting them into families. Singleness does not mean you love to be alone. Singleness means you don't have a family of your own that um, must take you in. And so therefore, it's wonderful to have a bunch of families that choose to take you in. That's the way singleness should work within the, within the scriptures. Um, uh, how many people did Maslow's chart when you were in uh, elementary school, middle school, something like that? You know, you remember the hierarchy of needs and all that kind of thing? Like, you guys look at me like I'm crazy. You don't remember? Like, top of that chart was what? You remember? Self-actualization. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you know this. Um, that's not a biblical word, and Maslow's chart is not a biblical concept. Um, the actualizing yourself is actually the bad part of Romans 1, not the good part of Romans 1. Put it, putting yourself as the pinnacle of the top of the pyramid is um, the, the definition of idolatry. So, 
when our sexuality becomes um, uh, the pinnacle of the chart, I need to be affirmed within the way that I interact with others sexually, we already put ourselves in this position. So the, the, the classical uh, position on the church is that, the, that those who are not able to be married should be single. But that is taken culturally as this incredibly oppressive way of thinking because we've placed sexuality at the top of the chart. And so we've said, like, but if I'm, if I'm attracted to somebody of the same gender and I'm not able to fulfill that, then that means that I'm, I'm being oppressed, which is not biblically true. God actually says there's beautiful ways to, for you to be fully fulfilled in a God-actualization, not a self-actualization. And so when, when sexuality becomes the top of the chart, which started in 1960 and has moved forward in the sexual revolution, we get to a place where the idea of singleness as a, as a response to homosexuality um, becomes oppressive and becomes very difficult to even talk about in context because it's like people are saying, well, you can't just tell people to be single. I, I would never tell people to be single. I would tell them, as I've prayed for different people, I would tell them, maybe... God will give you one person of the opposite gender. But if not, I, I think singleness is the best option. And I, I think I stand on a whole lot of, of church history when I say that. Like most of, the, most of the old dead people that you read who has had incredible experiences with God, almost all of them were single. It's very difficult to go back more than, a, uh, once you go back about 150 years, it's very difficult to find somebody worth reading that wasn't single. Like, single people had incredible experiences with, with God. I mean, just beautiful experiences. And we have written that out as the, the best thing that you can do is express your sexuality with another person. Well, Teresa of Avila didn't think that. She thought oneness with Christ was really incredible. And that was really the pinnacle. And so I, I think the church has lessened the gospel to get to a place of self-fulfillment rather than this idea of what God really calls us into. And if we don't get back to that, then singleness is never going to be seen as a good option. So we have to value singleness. We have to invite people into families. We need to recognize sexual fulfillment isn't the top. Um, and we need to recognize, and this will be the last word until we get into all these questions, um, we, we need to recognize that the journey is not an easy one. And so to say to someone who sat across from lots of people in their early 20s at the peak of their hormonal cycles saying, I, I'm saying that's attracted, I don't know what to do with it. It's hard. It is really, really, really difficult. We need to have grace with each other. But grace with each other does not mean do whatever you want to do. Grace with each other is let let me walk with you and let's together lead towards a place where, of health where we can get to a place that's, re that's really healthy. And that's a, that's a tough journey. We need to have grace with each other in the process. And we need to recognize people are going to fall. People are going to wrestle. There's going to be struggle. Like that's, it's, it's wild because we get to a place with homosexuality and it feels totally different than our other friends who are struggling with heterosexual sin. Like, I don't know of anybody in their early 20s who's single who's not struggling with sexual sin. I don't know of any, zero. 
So the fact that homosexual, same-sex oriented people are struggling with sexual sin seems to be like an anathema to us. Like, that's crazy. Like, all of my heterosexual friends that are single in their 20s are struggling with sexual sin. Why, why am I okay with that? Like, you know, like I'm used to guy conversations where the regular conversation is, yeah, I looked at porn again this week. Like, but when a homosexual comes and says, I really think, I, like, I just feel this draw toward this person, we're like, oh, that's terrible. No, it's normal. <laughs> this is the way, it's the way life works. And so we need to love one another and walk with one another in the journey. Matt, you want to throw anything in before I start answering a bunch of questions? <laughs> oh, wow, this is a long one. Um, how do we, as Christians seeking the shalom of the city, face the intentional gay and sexualized agenda? So that whole thing I kind of laid out at the front end of this agenda that's kind of coming, coming this direction. Um, wh- what do we do with that? I'm not going to read all of this, but I'm going to just kind of skim through and give you a, a sense of it. Um, Yeah, so the, the, the heart of it, in fact, it says, the root of the question, are we to stand by and let this happen to us? And I think that's, that's really, that's a great question. And the answer to that is absolutely no. No, we're not to just stand by and be like, yeah, whatever. Um, but we need to start with our families, our churches, and begin to teach a healthy sexual ethic in the community of faith before we begin to go out and like, try to change the world. So the, it's a, not an exact parallel, but I've said dozens and dozens of times, I am, I am unwilling to listen to this. I, I believe, I'll go on record, I believe that abortion in all cases is wrong. I think there is a better way always. And I am not willing to listen to anybody talk to me about that who's also not willing to take a single mom into their house. So you have to start with real people. You can't start with issues. You have to start with real people. If you're not willing to take a single mom into your house, then don't go out with a sign. Don't go passing around a, a, a sheet for people to sign. Go take a single mom into your house. Same thing is true here. We have to start at the, at the, the base level and begin to have conversations, real conversations with our kids, real conversations with one another, really challenging one another. And, and then, yes, yeah, studying and, and seeing what the culture is doing and saying, like, this, this is happening. And that's why I started with the cultural context that I did, because I think we, we have this sense that this just kind of emerged. Um, there's a real dense book um, that uh, will be on the reading list that will come out, I'm hopeful, by next week, uh, called The Rise and Fall of the Modern Self, or sorry, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, Rise and Fall was the Third Reich, that's a different thing. Uh, <laughs> Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by a guy named Carl Truman. It's, it's dense, but it is an incredibly well laid out argument that says this is how we got here, and it doesn't start 50 years ago, it starts about 400 years ago, and it kind of lays out the pathway that got us to the place that we're in. Um, while it's tough to read, it's really, really worth it. On a much easier level, uh, the book Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy is a really excellent starting point. Um, she works at a much less scholarly level and way, way easier to understand. But that would be a really, uh, really good starting point. Um, how do we best interact with gay married Christians who disagree and follow all of the other teachings? So um, th- this is basically people who have said, uh, I'm, I'm assuming by the question, uh, said that they agree with a progressive theology, accept Jesus as Savior, and also are living in a committed gay relationship or a gay marriage relationship. 
Um, it's a, that's a really, really, really tough question. Um, and to some degree, there's a, a matter of conscience that goes, goes with it. Um, I, I'd say a, a couple things. Um, if the way that you interact with your committed gay friends is different than the way that you interact with your committed heterosexual friends who are living together before they're married, you have a problem. So, so the, same kind of, the same kind of sin is happening, and that should be handled in the same way. So for, for me and for a lot of people, what I've tried to do is just, I, I come across, because I'm a pastor and the people, the average people I talk to are people who are probably like a lot of you, I come across a lot more heterosexual people who are living together than I do committed gay Christians who are married to one another. And so I just put the one through, to, through the filter of the other. How would I be interacting with this person? if they were living together and they weren't married. That's the way I should be interacting with these other people, which means love, call to repentance, and, and an invitation into the beauty of Jesus. Because what I believe is not you're, uh, you're, um, you're an awful, terrible person any more than I am, but what I believe is you're not living the best life that God has for you. He has a much bigger plan for you than this. And because I love you enough, I'm gonna paint that picture not say you're terrible you need to get i guess that's a divorce i want to say uh, if, when you're in relationship with people um as time goes on it's going to bear the weight of the truth so you know to speak into people's lives as a christian um you know as t like i said as time goes on you're going to you're going to gain the trust of that person and you're going to be able to lean into those hard conversations. So, yeah, yeah. So much of these difficult conversations have to be grounded in real relationship when they're not grounded in real relationship. There's a great study that just came out about how the polarization of America is based almost wholly on the idea of identifying issues, not engaging people that when we engage people, we're actually not polarized. It's when, it's when we engage issues alone and not people that polarize us. And that's so true within the area of sexuality. If all the people you interact with are heterosexual, then it's gonna, you're gonna struggle to figure out how to deal with your one homosexual friend. But you know what? The same thing's gonna be true if all your friends are white and you have one black friend and a shooting happens and you're not sure what to do with it. The same thing's true. It's like you, you just don't know how to do it because you're not in relationship with people. And so being in relationship with people is key, and then you earn the right to be able to start to speak into things. Um, I would not say that you need to rush to this is evil and awful and get rid of it. I, I actually think it's a really complicated thing. Uh, I remember a conversation with somebody. Um, they were walking with a lesbian couple that was a long-term, I don't know if they were married or not, but they were a long-term commitment, monogamous relationship, raising kids, and they came to me and said, I'm not even sure what to pray because this is the best family, this is better than any family in the church. Like, they're, they're good at this. What do I pray? Like, if I pray that they come to faith and leave each other, I pray for the brokenness of this family. Like, I'm not even sure, what, what do I do with that? And that's a real question, and it's really worth wrestling through. It doesn't have a black and white easy answer. That's why it has to be in relationship, because if it's separate from relationship, you, there's no good answer for that. So it has to be in relationship. Um, so what you're saying is it's okay to be gay or lesbian, but it's not okay when you take action on it. So um, 
why did they force marrying when, uh, this says when Jesus wasn't even a thing. I like that. Jesus was a thing then. He was eternal. But anyway, I get it. I get what you're saying. Um, so so that, it's a great question. Like why, why historically was there this push towards heterosexuality and forcing people into marriage? Um, I, and I can't speak to all of that because I, I'm, I'm in this culture. We don't force marriage in this culture. Um, marriage, when you look back historically in many societies had absolutely nothing to do with romance. It had nothing to do with love. It had all to do with power and structure and all of that kind of stuff. So a lot of the marriages that were forced, per se, really had nothing to do with heterosexual love. It had nothing to do with, like, one man, one woman for a covenant relationship for life. It had to do with, like, getting an alliance with a certain other country or like having some kind of connection into some political sphere. And so I would say that kind of forced marriage has always been a a wrong thing. But yes, at the bottom line, the question of am I saying that being a gay or a lesbian is okay but not acting on it? Yes, I would say that if you can live that life, and I have several friends who are living that life. There's a guy named uh, Greg Coles, if you want a really, uh, a, a really interesting book. I don't agree with everything Greg says, but I agree with 95% of what Greg says. Um, he has a book called Single Gay Christian, which is kind of his memoir on his journey. Um, he's a worship leader up at State College Alliance Church, a great, godly man. Um, he is very clearly gay. He, uh, he lives with a roommate, a male roommate, um, not roommate, uh, apartment mate. And they have a little sign in their kitchen that says, we cook together, not sleep together, which I think is great. I think that's, that's really helpful. Um, but I, th- I think there's really healthy ways to pursue that and really healthy ways to pursue godly friendship and real deep relationship that are n- not sexual. It's kind of crazy because we have tons of deep opposite gender relationships as heterosexuals that are deep and meaningful, that are not sexual, and so it's so odd you get to this place where you're a homosexual and it's like if Matt comes up here and I give him a hug, which I do any time I see him, people are like, oh, that's, isn't that weird? No, it's not weird. Like, he's my brother. I love him. And so, of course, I'd give him a hug when I see him. It's like we can have a really healthy, non-sexual relationship. Like, it doesn't, doesn't even make any sense in the rest of life. But we get whacked out when it comes to homosexuality. Um... How would you answer the question, who are you to judge um, to someone outside the church if they don't recognize that dynamic between God and man and brokenness and redemption? It's a great question, and I think the bottom line of that um, is that I, I would say my judgment is not of your behavior. My judgment is of the life that God calls us into. I, I would paint a life in the gospel, not a life that is anti some kind of relationship. So um, maybe a, a clearer way to say that is the, the conversation I would have would not be around sexuality. The conversation I would have would be a, around redemption. If they don't understand redemption, that's where I would start. And I would start with the idea of this is what Jesus has done for us. And I, I, I have said for years that it, people are lousy Holy Spirits. Like the Holy Spirit's not auditioning for his job and you don't need to have it and neither do I. And so if, if I point somebody to Jesus over and over and over again, I'm very confident that if they're pursuing Jesus, the Holy Spirit is more than capable of identifying the areas in their life that need to fi- be fixed. And if I push them towards an area that, is not, that Holy Spirit's not ready to fix yet, it's going to be a train wreck anyway. Like, it doesn't matter how hard I push it. 
And so you just point people to Jesus, and whether it's inside the church or outside the church, you, you point people to Jesus, and then you trust the Holy Spirit to, to do his work. So I, I could tell a long story about that, but I have one more question that's here, so I'm going to hit it quick. Um, do you have any advice for healthy, deep, and Christ-centered conversations with non-Christians, uh, non-Christian friends fully pursuing a homosexual lifestyle? Um, so I don't know within that question if you're talking about somebody who's pursuing Jesus or if you're talking about somebody who just is a friend who's pursuing homosexuality. So if it's a friend who's pursuing homosexuality, I would say you, you want to paint the beauty of the gospel for them and lead them towards Jesus, not redemption from this sin, but redemption from sin, much more broadly than that. And so honestly, you're not gonna get very far if the sin that you pull out is homosexuality. If the, if the sin, like, Honestly, that's probably not the biggest sin in their life anyways. Like most, of us, like, most of us have a lot more pride than we do sexual perversion. Like, we're just broken, messed up people in all kinds of ways. And so find that area um, and have that conversation. If it's a Christian, and there's always a bunch of questions around, um, uh, what about people who say they're following Jesus and they're, they're committed in a homosexual relationship, they're pursuing a homosexual relationship? And, and my answer to that is, again, the same thing that I would say to somebody who's pursuing a sexual, heterosexual relationship outside of the bounds of marriage, which is it's not God's best. And so let's, let's pursue after God's best. And that will lead to a lot of other conversations, and it's probably going to lead to you needing to bring in some more people into the conversation and you getting some feedback with people. And um, as you get feedback, whether it's from me or anybody else, me or Matt or any of us, know that um, there are not really black and white easy answers to a lot of these questions. We're going to tell you what we think is best in the moment, what was grounded, what we believe is grounded in Scripture. But there is no substitute for being in real relationship with someone and knowing them. But that doesn't mean you have to sacrifice on, on biblical truth. Know them and point them back to truth, which is doable. It's, it's hard, but it's, it's doable. Matt, do you want to add into any of that? The only thing I would say is, um, I mean, you want to, at some point, when people come to a realization that you're a Christian and you're following and you're talking to somebody that struggles with same sex or, or pursuing homosexual relationships, um, there's going to come a time where they're going to ask you about your theology. Are you, you know, trying yep. to figure out? Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that we as Christians stand upon the biblical truth of what we really believe. I mean, what we really believe is marriage up front. I mean, you don't want to beat people over the head with Scripture, um, but you still clearly, it's going to come up in conversation. I think you need to be able to uh, um, stand up for the gospel during those times and not be afraid, well, I'm going to offend this person or whatever. If yeah, I, I still Thank think you. that it's yeah. very important that because I know that, and you can probably tell, there was times where people came to York Alliance and and they sat and, you know, and then there were times where you had to preach on some things that, they, on marriage, for instance, um, what what does biblical marriage look like? And after a while, you, you, don't, you don't see them around, you know, and you're like, yeah. what, wonder what happened there. Yeah. Um, 
and you, you know of stories, you know, but I think it's important. You've always stuck to the, what, what God's called you to, to preach. And, and, and yeah, those are sad situations, but um, I think in the gospel, um, there's also times where Jesus's teachings were hard mm-hmm. and people left. Um, yeah. And Jesus didn't go chasing after them. Um, so yeah, that's I, one thing I wanted to just yeah. point out. Yeah. yeah, I think Matt's point is really good. We can tend to back away from what we believe in order to try to win a friend and then ultimately like spring it later, like a bait and switch kind of thing. And that's just not, that's not healthy. Um, uh, we, we, need to, we need to be firm in what we believe and we should be able to say it lovingly in a way that is not offensive but still true. And so, so quick last story and then I'll just kind of frame where Matt's headed next week. Um, I had a friend, have a friend, who is in a very, very committed, long-term married, uh, he's, uh, he's, doesn't live in York, but he's married in a homosexual relationship, long-term committed relationship. I love him deeply. He's a guy that I've spent a decent amount of time with and just really love his family. I'm really connected to him. And he never, ever, ever would come to York Alliance because he knows York Alliance. And so he just would never come. And I would tell him all the time, like, come on, just come, just come hang out with us. Like, we're, we're not, because we're that, we have that kind of relationship. It's fine. I'm like, just come hang out with us. It's fine. So one day I was preaching through uh, books of the Bible, because that's what I do. I was preaching through books of the Bible. And I look in the back of the sanctuary, and picture the sanctuary upstairs. So if you've never seen it, it's really long. Um, and I'm standing in the front, and I look in the back, and here he comes. I was like, you got to be kidding me. He's here. I was so excited, because I, like, I've wanted him to come to church. I've prayed for him for years. Like, I want him to come to church. And I run back. I give him a big hug. I'm like, man, it's so good to see you. I'm so happy that you're here. And then I realized I was preaching through the book of Genesis, and literally I was preaching Sodom and Gomorrah that day. <laughs> like, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I've wanted you to come to church for years, and you show up when I'm preaching Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, you're kidding me? But here, here, and here's the thing I want you to hear. I we were doing two services. I had already preached one. I preached the second one. I, I asked some people after I put it all together who had been in the first service, will you please listen to what I say in the 1030 and tell me if I say anything different? Because I don't want to shade it. I want to I tell the truth. And, um, and I didn't. They said I said it the same way. I said it very close to the same way. But I talked to him. We had dinner together that night. And I talked with him. And he said, he said you know what? I don't agree with you but there was nothing you said that offended me, and actually I left feeling like you really loved me. He's still in a gay marriage. He's still walking a different direction than I would want him to be walking, but I think that's a vital piece. Like, I didn't, I, I didn't shade the truth, but I still, I still spoke it in love and loved him, and I, and I think we have to get there. We have to get to a place where we're loving people primarily and telling them the truth. Um, next week... My family's on vacation, and so although I will miss you all, I'm going to be really glad to be seeing my family for a little bit of time, so it's, you know, bummer. Matt's going to be here, and Matt will tell you a, a chunk of his story, uh, as well as just kind of g- give you some framework of his thoughts as well. But I, I want to encourage you, Matt is a, Matt's a rare godly gift in all kinds of ways. I love Matt dearly. One of the ways that Matt is a gift is there are very few people in the church who are willing to stand up and say, this is my struggle, whatever the struggle is, this is where I'm at, this is really hard, 
and ask me any question you want about it and I'll tell you the truth. Like that doesn't happen in any area, let alone in the area of sexual sin. And Matt's willing to do that, so take advantage of that. Ask him questions and like say, like what would you, what would you say to this? If this happened, what, how would you respond to this? And like I said, same thing with me. I'm not always gonna be right, he's not always gonna be right, but you're gonna get a, a real perspective from somebody who's actually in real time going through this journey. And so I'm so grateful that Matt's uh, willing to be here and to do that with us. And so be nice to him next week because I love him, I'll come back and get you. All right, anything else? Matt, I'm gonna pray over you as I pray for us as we go and uh, pray just for God's grace in your life. Jesus, I thank you for this difficult conversation. Uh, necessary, important, but difficult. And I pray that we would be people who operate in love and in truth. I think of the idea uh, that Jesus held together grace and truth perfectly and that we are called to do the same thing. And so God, teach me, teach us to do that. I thank you for Matt. I thank you for the gift he is to York Alliance and to Mosaic City Church. God, I pray that your anointing would rest upon him and that your blessing would flow through him, particularly next week as he comes to share his story. God, would you, uh, would you just give him confidence and peace to speak your word in truth? And God, would you come uh, draw close to him? Even this week as, uh, as he's journeying through this season, God, would you, would you draw close to him and give him your peace? God, I thank you for each one in this, this class who's trying to wrestle through this. Um, these are real things in the midst of a culture that's pushing in a different direction. And so God, teach us to love people well and to stand firm on truth, to uh, raise our kids and our, our families, our churches in a, a true biblical theology that is soaked in the love of Christ. And so Jesus, teach us in the midst of a polarized world to love people toward you. Thank you for this time. Bless all that is of you, and may it stick with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.